Good morning. We are so glad that you have decided to spend some time with us as we navigate scripture, as we continue our discussions about what it means to experience rest, not only as a day, not only as opening up a space in the middle of our hectic weeks, but also as a spiritual practice that will restore some balance to the rhythms of life that we inhabit. Before we jump in, to our study for today, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me and invite God's presence in our midst. Lord, we thank you so much for the capacity you give us for rest and reflection. And on this Sabbath, we are called to do both. We are called to find and define our rest in you, even as we reflect on the kind of God who you are. So we pray, Lord, that you stay in parts of our conversation, that you guide said discussion, that you accompany us, and that as we talk, something new might begin to happen. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Dorothy Gibson. Well, Dorothy Gibson was one of the most famous actresses of the silent era in Hollywood. Gibson starred in a myriad of movies, but perhaps, perhaps her most important role was that of the damsel in distress in that recounting of the terrible tale. That tale that happened in the midst of an icy ocean as the ocean liner sped to New York. Well, people don't know is that as Gibson was on that boat, wearing the same dress she had put on merely a week before, she was actually recounting her own experience. When the movie came out, she had the task of remembering and reminding people that she herself had been a passenger on the fateful voyage of Titanic. Now, we don't have a copy of the film. It has been lost to history, but we can only imagine what Gibson felt as she wore those same clothes and tried to get herself in that same state of mind as she was placed in a lifeboat only to remember the real life preserver that kept her from perishing we can't imagine what it felt like to be at that same place in that same moment. Gibson would later comment that her prior experiences gave her the capacity to inject a certain level of intensity to the role. But alas, that movie was just a copy, a painful copy of what had happened so few weeks before. I think about that idea as we delve into our conversations on spirituality. I mean, I want you to think about it. So we have the Sabbath. And as we've been talking about throughout these previous weeks, the idea of the Sabbath is a snapshot, a snapshot of creation. 
God's ideal of rest embodied in a commandment, a day in which we can spend some time with him. But too often we forget that the purpose of the Sabbath is to remind us that it merely serves, as the author of Hebrews will say, as a copy of the real thing that is to come. You remember how Jesus says it? In perhaps the most famous chiastic structure in the whole New Testament, the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath is defined as this. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Rather, the Sabbath was created for man. And so I think about that same Jesus, about that same Jesus trying to remind us that doctrines and days are merely shadows of the real purpose that God has for our lives. And I come, I come to the Gospel of Matthew, the 11th chapter. And the section that I want to investigate with you this morning is comprised of verses 20 to 30. And what I'd like to do for context is to simply read them. And then we're going to extract two primary points, two points that I want to serve as launch pads as you begin to develop your understanding of the true essence of rest and what it means to celebrate rest in the midst of shadows. So listen to Matthew's account. He writes, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they, had, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of the judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and yet revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary, and all of you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Contextually, I need to remind you that this dialogue, this description that Jesus gives of cities that continue to harden their hearts. And this promise of finding rest and a light yoke is found right before Jesus begins an excursus on his role as Lord of the Sabbath. But as I promised, I want to explore two primary things with you. First, did you catch it? Did you catch where Jesus is delivering this message? He says, woe to you. And it's funny because the majority of Jesus's ministry was held in these towns. And yet somehow 
by reasons that still remain a mystery to me, these towns continued to rebel against the gentle hand of God. Jesus says, hey, if all of this that I had done had happened in any other place, people would have flocked to me. The reality is this. Those of us who possess the truth, who have the witness, not only of Jesus, but of a God who demands we rest, bear a greater responsibility. We look at the world and we sometimes, well, we sometimes feel a bit of pity. We look at busy schedules. We look at people for whom spirituality only comprises a minuscule part of their week. We think about those who are not involved in a Bible study or who don't regularly attend a congregation. We remember those who work on Saturday and Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. We look at people for whom life has become an endless routine and we pity them. We turn and we gaze inwardly. We look at all our own communities and we say, ah, but we know better. We have the gift of a theology of rest, a theology of rest birthed out of this concept of Sabbath. And so we somehow have this greater truth. And yet typically, typically Sabbath, Sabbath is a day full of a different sort of routines a different sort of expectation, a different kind of hustle and bustle, dare I say, a different kind of stress. We continue to harden our hearts to the God that says, come to me for my yoke is light. I wonder, I wonder what would happen out there in that world that we sometimes frivolously pity so much if they got a chance if they got a chance to hear the truth of the God of rest. And so rather than diminish our responsibility, I would posit to you that having the concept of divine rest gives us a greater responsibility vis-a-vis the world in which we inhabit. The Sabbath isn't something that we hide, that we take into our own private cloisters or private spaces. The Sabbath is a concept. Rest is a concept that is deeply needed by the people who continue to yearn and thirst for a lighter yoke. And so, as another filmmaker once famously said, with great power comes great responsibility. And the great gift of rest that God has bestowed inherent in our theology demands a higher degree of responsibility. So rather than tell you how to keep rest, rather than try to define the contours or the outlines of this concept, permit me to invite you to be responsible with your rest. Responsible not only on how you practice it, but with how you share it. And the question then that you might be asking is, well, what is rest? Does it comprise my going to church? Is it about the meals that I have after we gather to study and to worship together? Is it my weekly nap or my family events when everybody comes into my house and for a brief moment, everything is good with the world? 
Well, if you continue reading this particular pericope, you will notice that at least as Jesus sees it, the responsibility of rest isn't about a series of doctrinal propositions, but rather, as we have said so many times here, it is about a person. I don't understand. I still quibble and grapple with the right way in which to keep Sabbath, but I understand people. I understand relationships. My kids do too. When I say Micah Samuel Mendez, my son knows. My son knows by the fact that I've employed his whole name. My son knows by the, fa by the tone in my voice that something has shifted in the relationship. We might not understand dogma, but most of us understand people. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I praise you because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to the little children. The beauty is that rest has been revealed to us in the embodiment of the person of rest, Jesus the Messiah. And that is why Jesus will continue saying that the whole of this book, from circumcision to Sabbath, is embodied in him. Read again the words that he quotes in verse 27. All things. And the original language, the, this means everything. It is the same grammatical composition that the author of Revelation will use to refer to the whole of Scripture. He says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. And you cannot know the Father. You cannot know the God that commands rest without first knowing the Son. And the Son has chosen to reveal Himself to us. Responsibility with our rest demands that we share revelation. And the revelation of that rest is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And why is that so important? Because the only true message, the only true idea, the only true thing that can quell and quench the thirst that human beings feel is Jesus. Do you feel exhausted? Have you grown weary of life that demands so much from you? Jesus invites everyone, believers and unbelievers, Jews and Gentiles, free and slave, male and female, to come to me. Come to me, he says, all of you who are weary. This universal experience that we have, exhaustion, this universal experience that we have when we groan every morning and we look at our agendas and we wonder how we will catch our collective breaths. Come to me, all of you who are weary. Are you weighed down? Weighed down by the preoccupations of the world? Weighed down by relational disputes? Weighed down? by job issues, weighed down by, with disease or fear, weighed down by a community that doesn't exhibit rest responsibly, weighed down by churches who are insular instead of sharing the revelation of rest found in Jesus. Are you weighed down? Jesus says, I will give you rest. And how does he give us rest? Well, he give us, gives us rest because in a relationship with him, you can experience 
that same encounter, that same sabbatical encounter that Adam and Eve first experienced at the garden with their father, you can experience that today. You can cast your burdens and your cares on him. You can throw up your hands and say, it has become too complicated, too difficult. Can you take over now? You can do that and then you can rest, relaxing, frolicking in that Edenic garden with a full certainty that rest and restoration will be found in Christ. Come all who are heavy burden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. And the gentle Jesus tells you that by living the life, the life that prioritizes rest in a responsible manner, the life that shares the revelation of rest in a person, the yoke of discipleship provides rest for the soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is no mere shadow, no plot or play created on a stage to try to mimic the real thing. This is true rest for a weary and tired souls. In the second decade of last century, America, America was consumed with the ideas, not only of industrial revolution, but of the vehicle, that automobile that had promised independence, that had promised to shorten spaces and times and places. The automobile was such a popular invention that in Chicago, when people would go out, as the whole city, as the whole city was in this dreamlike state, this exuberance with vehicles, they wanted, well, they wanted to reflect how important and occupied they are. And so people in Chicago in the, in the second decade of the last century would put behind their ears, on their wrists, the nape of their necks, on their suits, the new perfume. The new perfume that was the scent of busyness, the scent of importance, the scent of self-reliance. The perfume was gasoline. People would actually place gasoline on themselves in order to reflect the status. And we do that, don't we? We try to reflect our busyness, our status, our chosenness by all these things that are external. We think they work. And in the end, in the end, we look back at our life and we say, well, that was foolish. So today, today I would ask you to replace the gasoline for the yoke of Jesus. For that, that is sweet, sweet, sweet aroma that will always provide rest. Rest in him, Stu. That's the message uh, of the lesson this week. Um, let's chat about that. Yes, it's a lot of good concepts. I want to go right to the beginning you talked about. We pointed out how the statement where the Sabbath is made for man, not 
the reverse, mm-hmm. you know. And unfortunately, at least in my encounter of that text, it's often used to justify like what one can do or not do on Sabbath. Because we, especially um, in our denomination, we certainly can relate to the the um, legalistic approach to Sabbath rest that made it not restful. And then mm-hmm. obviously in the scriptures, we see indications of the same reality that, that um, Sabbath became anything but rest, you know. But um, why do you think it's so important to understand that the Sabbath from a, a, a real spiritual rest, why is it so important to understand that the Sabbath was made for us, yeah. not the other way around? Well, see, I think I think it's always easier for us to talk uh, about things that are concrete, and we like to do that. We love our lists. We like th- things that are quantifiable, things that we can point to and we can feel say. structured. Exactly, we were created right to enjoy a bit of structure, to enjoy metrics that are measurable. That's why I think a lot of us, particularly a lot of us for some reason that go into this this field of work, um, we're very uncomfortable with things that are more abstract. And it's kind of this interesting dichotomy because faith itself is this abstract concept and yet we, we are uncomfortable with that. So when it comes to the concept of rest, which is also a really abstract factor, we want to point at things that are quantifiable. And the easiest one, I think, is we say, well, I'm really overwhelmed um, with my with my job or with issues I have at home. So Sabbath, I'm going to give myself a break from that. And I I know people when I was in college, um, we didn't have much money. And so I would have calls from collection agencies all the time. And I would say to myself, I'm giving myself a break on Sabbath. But come Sunday, those problems, those issues, those rhythms of life that were really unhealthy were still there. And so I think what Jesus is trying to tell people is that Rest itself is not something that is measurable. It's something that's experiential. And if it's experiential, then rest, in Sabbath particularly, is the primary building block for a relationship with God. And it's not that that relationship only happens on Sabbath. It is that Sabbath is the intentional space where you begin to reflect upon what that relationship is going to look for the following week. So let me give you a uh, one of my favorite things to do now. Um, my wife has decided that uh, we're getting older. And because we're getting older, um, it's important for us to start taking a bit more uh, care of ourselves. And so um, I told her, uh, I don't want to do that. Uh, I try to exercise pretty regularly um, so that I can eat whatever I want. And she said, yeah, but you see, this would be, you'd, you'd feel so much better if, if, you, if you were a bit more intentional. And so about a month ago, we started meal planning. So every Sunday, we spend uh, the day meal planning and cooking and stacking these these meals and measuring portions and doing all this stuff to make sure that we're getting all the nutrients we want. 
Obviously, my journey towards health is going to have still some stumbles. And obviously, that Sunday experience doesn't encompass all of my journey to health. Um, you still need the day-to-day -day making sure you're eating the meals and you're walking or you're keeping yourself active. But that day uh, and that time I'm spending is intentionally allowing me to prepare for what is to come. And I think that's what happens with Sabbath. It's not that our whole relationship with God rests on the concept of rest in the Sabbath. It is that that time allows us to plan how the rest of the week is going to go. Well, I love, I love the whole connection to the uh, getting older and planning. I, I, I love it's a choice that I like how you phrase it. it's like decided we're getting older. I didn't know it was a choice. That's well, great. It's with, good to know. With Linda, it is. You know, Linda's yeah. Linda is a force of nature, yeah. so she believes that she can defeat even yeah, Father it, Time. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, another thing I find interesting about Sabbath a number of years ago, this kind of hit me. And looking back, it's such an obvious thing, but essentially, Sabbath was created before sin. Mm -hmm. So. I think that's particularly relevant to the statement of mm. the relational mm. dynamic. Because in a sinful world, we're like, well, can we do this or not mm -hmm. do this? And all this kind of thing. And there's all these different uh, rules and, and all that kind of thing, which I think we all understand that certainly everything uh, of meaning, there are, there are healthy boundaries and things like that. But it, God does not operate with the priority of, of rules. Uh, we've right. talked about it already in a relationship. I don't walk around. You don't walk around the room, right? I, you know, sometimes I do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. You know, and how does that work out for you? you know? Not, not too well, not yeah. too well. Here's the rules, honey. Uh, you're not following them. So why yeah. not? That ain't, ain't going to work. Well, I'm meal planning every Sunday now, so that should tell you. <laughs> Touche. Well, you know, I, I, that's great. But I, I think uh, it, it's so important to understand, one, we started with the Sabbath was made for us. It was something we needed mm -hmm. even before sin. So it would seem like it's pretty safe to argue we needed even more mm -hmm. after sin. And, and in a sinful world, we were good at messing it up. But uh, this idea of a yoke, a uh, couple of things. First of all, a number of years ago, it kind of hit me that, you know, the idea that Jesus and God, the Holy Spirit, they're working together on this. And and I think even in these Sabbath school discussions, I've mentioned it more than once, you know, there's sort of this perception, at least I kind of had this perception, there's the good cop, bad cop. Jesus mm. is the good cop, God's the bad mm -hmm. cop. But instead, this is this is a collaboration between the three Godhead, and it really is an illustration of the harmony, harmoniousness of three different individual beings working together and, and an illustration of the ultimate desire. I would argue that even the creation of man and woman, that that's the harmoniousness mm -hmm. that seeking. And then, of course, sin inter, inter, intervened to that. When we think about this idea of of rest, and we move into take my yoke upon me, mm. why do you think he chose to use the word yoke? That's a really, really good question, and it's one that I struggled with as well. 
Um, and I think that same realization that you had uh, came to me, which was Sabbath isn't kind of God's result to the problem of sin. It's not like God says, hmm, we've messed up, so I need to get a people that's going to worship on the right day so that we fix that. Sabbath was there from the beginning. And the promise of rest was there from the beginning. So I think that one of the problems that we have is that we think that exhaustion is a bad thing. Um, I can tell you that there is no greater feeling than coming into my house and having a tall glass of water after I've been working in the garden or mowing my, my grass for a couple hours and I'm exhausted, but I'm so I'm fulfilled as well. It's, it's almost as if the exhaustion itself and the sweat that is pouring from my brow, it, it gives me this connection with the work itself that I wouldn't have otherwise. And so being tired isn't a problem. Being tired, I think is a good thing. Um, the problem isn't that we grow weary. The problem is the things that make us grow weary. Um, and I think that's, that's one of, one of the problems with sin, right? When God tells Adam that the ground will be cursed, what he's actually saying is this, this relationship where exhaustion and working in the ground brings him pleasure will no longer bring him pleasure, that it will actually bring him thorns and thistles. So as long as what makes you exhausted, whether it's working in your garden or going on a jog or uh, going on a walk or on a hike, whatever it is that makes you exhausted, watching your kids, whatever it is that makes you exhausted, if it's giving you pleasure, it's a fair and a good thing. And then Jesus introduces this idea of, of a yoke. Um, I was in uh, Mexico a few few years ago, and uh, some uh, some friends that I have down there have a uh, a farm, and you saw, uh, or I, I got to saw to see uh, animals with a with a yoke, and um, it was the strangest thing because once you took the yoke off of uh, the bull, um, what ended up happening was. Uh, there was a moment where uh, he was kind of unsure or uncertain of where to go. And so it, he kind of just stood there. And um, I was I was just I thought about this text and I realized that yoke or, or, or exhaustion, the yoke or the or the exhaustion isn't the problem. The problem is the relationship that we have with the yoke or with that exhaustion. And I think that's why Jesus says, take my yoke. I am humble and gentle and my yoke is light. So Jesus's yoke, it is going to demand something of you. It's going to demand that you follow a direction. It's going to demand that you're task oriented. It's going to demand that you do something. But what it's going to give you is it's going to give you purpose and it's going to give you this relationship with the work that brings pleasure. And in that, uh, in that type of economy, the best thing that you can have then is the experience of uh, rest because now you've realized your purpose and God calls you into rest. Um, so I think yoke is, Jesus uses yoke, and as, as you mentioned before, uh, God uses the kind of similar language in the book of Genesis when he says, six days shall you work. Because working or going on a direction or, or, or being disciples or following Christ, it's not an easy thing. It, it's meant to cause some exertion. 
Uh, but it also is meant to give us this great sense of satisfaction and peace. Well, I, it, what you said made me think of a point, you know, if, if we rest all the time, it doesn't help. I think we the the vernacular is couch potato yes. comes to mind. Yes. And so that's not, you know, that's where there's too much rest. There's no yoke or there's no work. Um, another thing that kind of strikes me when you were talking there is, again, within our denominational culture, with we're Seventh-day Advent, so Advent, we, we have a focus uh, historically on the incoming. Mm-hmm. And a common conversation you can have with people is they're afraid Mm. of the end. Their Mm. experience of how that was explained Mm. to them. And whenever they travel in that conversation, it brings up those Mm. emotional fears. So some just want to avoid the conversation altogether, which is understandable. And then... Then there's all kinds of some deny the conversation, mm-hmm. you know, they, you know, maybe we got it all wrong. And, and I'm sure there's some elements of that that we're always growing in our understanding. But I would argue that there it, it kind of fits in this category of, of this tension of the yoke. And what I, I where I'm going with that is it this is a common text. Take my yoke. Um and it, it feels like sometimes, like, well, you just need to take the kind of the doctrine of take the mm. yoke of Christ. Mm. And in some respects, it's kind of this hierarchical mm-hmm. thing. God is in charge. He's the boss. And so take my yoke. He's telling me to take yoke. Okay, I got to submit to my boss, take the yoke, and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think that forces us into a... Uh, a narrow thing. So how does fear of end time understanding and yoke, where, what, what is the time trying to make? I think we all understand anything of value takes effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and at times it feels like some of the Christian community, the larger Christian community, um, wants to take that work aspect mm-hmm. out of the gospel. And I, I realize I'm traveling in some possibly sacrilegious space <laughs> here. It's almost a, a, a oxymoron to, you know, work and gospel. But there is effort. Right. And we, we've got to stop denying that. And Because why I think that's so important is we instinctively know there's something that has to happen. Yeah. I got to do something. And that's where we get into trouble because some's like, oh, I got to do this and then I'm going to be saved. I got to do this to be saved. I got to keep the Sabbath right and I'll be saved, whatever, which, you know, takes us down to the wrong path. So we, the yoke, to me, uh, particularly in the sinful world, Jesus acknowledging whether you believe in me or not, this world has yokes. Mm Mm-hmm. So you can have the world yoke, which in some contexts can feel like, ah, oh, this is easy breezy. But in the long run, even the, you know, the super wealthy, the, you know, all the things that you think, hey, if I just had that and everything, pretty consistently, they don't seem to be happy. They don't have happy relationship. You know, you kind of go down the, the list. So in this world, there is a yoke. He's just saying, take mine. Mm. 
So how would you elaborate on this idea that Christ, who certainly had a yoke, and I don't think easy would be the first thing that would come right. to mind. Right. How do you explain, take my yoke, that's easy or light? Well, so I think you've you've mentioned it really well, um, this idea that the gospel is never opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And so um, the notion is when you follow a set of beliefs, whatever beliefs those are, whether it be Christianity or, or anything else, um, you are going to require, it is going to require some effort to buy into that whole cosmology that you've now become a part of. And so there's no, I, I can't think of any ideological movement that says, hey, you don't really have to do anything. Um, so that's, I think that's the first thing. The first thing is, is to recognize that anything worth believing in has requires some effort. The difference with Christianity is you don't have to earn anything. It's not like, well, we're, here's your effort, and then depending on how much you contribute to the pot, you're going to continue climbing uh, steps on this enlightenment ladder. Uh, Christianity just says, hey, whatever effort you can give, God will do something with it. Um, and that effort is uh, separate from from your status before God. That's that's complete. Th those are kind of uh, divergent paths. And then Jesus says, "Well, take my yoke." And you are absolutely right, Stu. Jesus bear Jesus bore a yoke that was heavier and and more difficult, I think, than than any yoke that has been cast upon anyone. Um. But why did he do that? And I think the reason why he did that is Jesus wanted not only to offer us salvation, but he also wanted to offer us a glimpse of who God truly is. Because we do, um, we do have this uncomfortable relationship with God where uh, a lot of times, as you mentioned, fear and uh anguish and burden uh, become part of, of our religious experience. I think of our own faith tradition and how we uh, experience uh, the, the idea of the end times and how that yoke has become unbearable to some people because of the amount of anxiety and fear it, it produces. So I think God wants to give us, it, through the person of Jesus, a glimpse of who he is in order that we might trust that the big issues, the big issues, the big issues in our life are taken care of. We feel anxiety and fear about the end times because we are ever unsure of what our status is. But what would happen if God says, your, your status has been resolved already, you don't have to worry about that. Now, does that mean you, you then sit on the couch and eat potato chips? Well, no, that means now you have a responsibility, a burden, I might add it, I might add to it, uh, to go and say, hey, let me tell you what worked for me. And so I think God, Jesus says, well, take my yoke because my yoke is light. And again, I think about oxen 
and I, I, I've seen uh, flat, uh, fields being plowed a couple times, and I've never seen uh, the the person who's driving the the oxen say, "Hey, um, it's time to put the yoke on." Um, and, you know, and have this long conversation about why the oxen need to plow the field, because if the field doesn't get plowed, then there can be no crops. It just kind of happens because it's what oxen do. And I think if the call that Jesus is saying is, or is extending to us is you've understood who I am. You've realized that the big issues in your life have been resolved. So there's nothing to be afraid of. Now I'm inviting you to the path of discipleship and the path of discipleship is one that requires effort. It, it requires, as, as Bonhoeffer says, uh, for us to say, I'm going to die to myself, which is not an easy thing. But it's a thing that we do because after all, we are disciples and disciples carry yokes, um, just like oxen carry carry yokes in order to plow fields. That's what we do. We, we are in this process called the harvest, and that's just what we do. It comes second nature. And uh, you'll find, I think, that the more something becomes second nature, the more we become habituated to doing something, the less effort it's going to require, the less burdensome it, it's going to, to seem. Um, my, my youngest, uh, Kai, is an early riser, and uh, up until he was born, I was not a morning person, but every morning, 5 a.m., he's up. Now... Even when he's at grandma's house, I wake up at 5 a.m. It's kind of become part of who I am. I'm not thinking or setting an alarm and saying, hey, I need to wake up at this time. It just happens. And I think that's what Jesus says. My yoke, because you've understood who I am, because you've understood that there's nothing to be afraid of, is going to be so light that it becomes habitual to you. Well, I, I love that because I also think, again going, again, going back to this kind of in time, you know, I, I find it very fascinating. You read like Peter or Paul who seem to have clear indication. They know their time is coming mm -hmm. to an end, but there's kind of a calmness to mm -hmm. it. Um, there are stories about in the medieval time, you know, the classic um, people being burned at the stake, yeah. but being so peaceful. And it, what's really come to help me understand some things is, you know, God promises in him, you'll never be asked to do something you can't do. Mm. And that, that needs to be qualified. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So God isn't going to ask you to be burned at the stake or whatever, if that, so you can kind of just check that off your list, like whatever your fear of that end time. And I, I think it's really important. What you said is a lot of that fear is because it's a question about status. Mm -hmm. Am I going to make it or not? If, am I going to bail at the last minute? You know, whatever like that. That's something we have to place in God's hands. And that's certainly an illustration of how the burden can be light. Mm. Put it in God's hands. He's going to handle it. Because he does say he's the author and the finisher, finisher of our, of our faith. faith. Absolutely. Do we actually believe that statement? Now, the author part, you take, you're talking about, exercising and, and eating right, all of us understand that burden. Yeah, it's a burden. <laughs> now, I'm impressed. Some seem to have the will. They just decide, I'm going to do it this. And I'm not one of those persons. And then 
a lot of our motivation for some of those can actually even be selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to look good, whatever, you know, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing about that, but um, I'm finding it, you know, there's a lot of things that in my life, particularly lifestyle and things that um, I have a lot of conviction, a burden, if you will, um, that I, I would like to see change in my life. And what I'm finding helpful over previous attempts to do that is it's motivated more by a loving dynamic mm. than a selfish one. And I'm finding it easier to start pursuing that. Because, for example, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a burden on my kids. You know, it's, you know, I ate whatever I wanted. Didn't, I was a couch potato. I didn't take on the burden of living a better <laughs> lifestyle. And then, you know, when I get older, they have to take care of me. And if I had done things differently, you know, I realize some of that you don't have full control over. But this is something I have control more importantly, I mean, we all understand is like you eat something and then you try and have a conversation or, or, you know, with smaller kids, you eat certain things and you just like, you know, I just want to lay down and I'm not interacting with my kids. You know, there's all these kind of things and we just get weighed down by guilt. Yeah. No, it's like God is our author. So if there's something we need to do, he'll draw our attention to it. And and I've said this many times. I think I said this just a few weeks ago with Joey. One of the things I, I love about professional athletes is to some extent, they're surprised when they lose. Mm-hmm. They expect to win. If we really believe that God is an author and finisher of our faith, why aren't we expecting to win? Mm. Because we don't believe that now, do we? Because we think it's about us. Uh, So not only does the New Testament tell us that Jesus is both the author and the finisher in the book of Hebrews, um, that particular passage is grabbing onto this tradition that the early church had, where they believed that it wasn't, uh, to, to use Paul's words, it's not me, but Christ who lives in me. And so um, there's, there's this wonderful little commercial uh, that, that plays on, on TV that I just, I've loved. And, and I think it's because it's made this uh, real impact on the way I, I, I understand how I walk with God. And in the commercial, you have two little girls and as most little girls do, they're in recess somewhere and they're choosing teams. They're about to play basketball. And um, you just see the two little girls and they're looking at who they're going to pick first. And then the camera pans out and you actually see uh, the people that are that are going to be chosen. And there's a bunch of little girls and boys. And at the very end, you see Charles Barkley. Now, for those of you who don't know, Charles Barkley is uh, one of the greatest uh, power outspoken, <laughs> very outspoken basketball player. Uh, but also a very, you know, a, a professional basketball player who is one of the greatest players ever. And so it doesn't take much for the first girl who chose, who, who's, uh, who's choosing to say, I want Barkley. And the other girl just goes, oh, man, because at that moment, I think that we all know game's over. I mean, you just have to throw it up to, to Barkley and Barkley will do whatever needs to be done. Um, and so 
did it require some effort for girl girl one to choose? Of course. I mean, you needed to say, hey, okay, these are my choices. Uh, I want Barkley. Uh, but once you made that decision, the outcome's already been decided. You've won. And so I think when, when Paul is saying, it's not me, but Christ who lives in me, is that he's pointing to the reality that as we make all of the choices that we need to make in this life, when it comes to yokes we choose, uh, we've got Jesus who's, who's, who's right there wanting and deserving to be our first pick. And for some strange reason, we continue choosing other things that leave the outcome in suspense. And so um, my, my thought is that all that it requires really in order for Christ to initiate and then to, con to consummate your faith journey is for you to choose him. He wants us to start experiencing heaven, heaven now. Yeah. So we don't have to wait. Yeah. Because we, we know we're in a sinful world. Yeah. Well, it's a great conversation. Uh, I think we all have time to close us off with prayer. Sure. Uh, well, thank you so much, Stu, for a wonderful conversation. And friends, um, let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you for initiating our faith. But we also are praying, praying for the moment that will come when you truly finish our faith. Um, we understand that this journey of faith is one that lasts as long as we're on this earth. But we know that... There will come a day when we will see him in the clouds and we will recognize him, Jesus, the one who consummates our faith. So while we are doing that, may we find rest in you. May we experience rest in a responsible manner. May we continue making ourselves busy and occupying ourselves with the task of being disciples, of going out and bearing the light and gentle yoke that you have for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. And as always, friends, may God richly bless you until we meet again. Mm -hmm.